This is Chapter 59 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, our Wayne Cabot scores some brownie points with his interview with David Baldacci. Pat Farnack introduces us to the debut novel from a Navy SEAL who's found a new mission in life. And we'll hear how author Madeline Miller put her own unique twist on the ancient Greek epic, The Odyssey. The Memory Man is back in the new thriller from David Baldacci. Amos Decker, the man who can remember everything that's ever happened to him because of a traumatic brain injury, returns in The Fallen. Our Wayne Cabot has more. David Baldacci, how cool to talk to you. Hello, hello. Hello, how are you? Uh, You know, your books have been all over my house for years now. I've read a few of them. My wife has read every single one of them. And awesome. <laughs> uh, so, so you, uh, I think the fact that I'm talking to you will score me some points at home. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate whatever, whatever help I can get is appreciated. Hey, you know, every guy needs that. <laughs> you, you are, have been at this for a very long time. I just saw someone, I read a review who said that they think that your last few books have been among your best. Do you ever reread your older novels and say to yourself, you know, I should have done this better. Or do you look at them and go, hey, you know, uh, that wasn't too bad. I think you, you always try to get better. And I, I certainly look back at some of my previous novels, particularly early on, and thought, you know what, I could have said, I could have said that 100 words a lot better in 10 words um, and be more economical and dive down into the language a little bit deeper and sharpen the plots a little bit more. But look, writing is a craft. We're just apprentices for life. Nobody ever masters it. So now all you can hope to do is with each book, get a little bit better, get a little more inspired, and get a little bit better at your craft. That economy in your writing extends to very short chapters, which really, I think, uh, enables the reader to want to keep reading. I think instead of these dense, long chapters in which it's almost a a labor to get through them sometimes, I mean, I think, okay, one more chapter. Next thing I know, I'm six more chapters in because of the method you use, the little teaser at the end. Is that something you've always done? No, not really. In my in my earlier books, I, I had longer chapters, and sometimes I didn't end the chapters the way that I do now. It's almost like a rhythm that I've developed over the years with the novels about, in my mind, I see the beats of action, and um, I separate those beats into chapters. And I always like to you know, end a chapter with a way that a hook that propels you on to the next one, because it, this is a ride. you know, It's a thrill ride, and I want you to be along for the whole thing. And if I can tease you in to keep going and keep turning the pages, I think it'll be reading it in one or two or three sittings probably is the best way because there's a lot of stuff going on and sort of being in the moment, you know, instead of putting it down and coming back a few weeks later, that, that you know, that energy and that drive is going to be gone. So I, would, I want to try to hook you in a short period of time to keep it, going. It works because uh, sometimes I curse you by saying, I really have things to do, but I, I, I can't just leave it there. To me, the true mark of a great writer, and, you know, this extends to all kinds of writing, is how simply, how briefly can you say something? Uh, here's a... One, two, three, four, a five-word sentence. He was tall and cadaverous. I saw that, and it sounds so simple and basic, but it just grabs you, cadaverous. Where do you find these words? This is all this, I call this is the sweat equity component of writing a novel. And, uh, you know, having a broad vocabulary is obviously a plus, but keeping it in your mind a way to, you know, cull down, I could have written that passage and I could have taken a paragraph to describe the guy, right. but 
I've always found that the best books where the writers are taking the time to write spare prose. And when they say spare prose, it's not like they just don't want to use a lot of words. They want to use the absolute best words that will convey an impression upon the reader in a way that's most economical so the reader can keep going forward. I'm not writing a book about what characters look like. I'm writing a book about what these certain characters are doing in the novel. And for me to give you sort of a thumbnail of what they look like, enough information for you to carry on uh, in the novel, that's all I need. I, and then I, that way it frees me up to have more room and latitude to write more about what the plot is about and what they're trying to accomplish in the novel and the obstacles that are being thrown up. So it's a balance for me. But, I, you know, I have so much ammunition in my belt and I have to make sure that I use it in the best way possible. Yeah, and it frees up our imagination to make it even more vivid that way to the reader. I'm reading from The Fallen. Uh, I like this one line. It was only four for dinner. It should have been five but the fifth was six feet under. <laughs> well done. <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking here, and I see that um, you are on day one of a, gee, I don't know how many night publicity tour for this. You're pretty much working nonstop. Starting at McLean, Virginia tonight, you're going night after night at Barnes & Nobles and all kinds of small neighborhood bookstores along the way. Do you enjoy this, that part of what you do, or does your wrist want to fall off after the fifth or sixth night? <laughs> well, I just landed back from overseas yesterday because I was over there promoting the uh, Fallen in, in some countries overseas. So um, there was a lot of events, a lot of publicity, a lot of book signings. Um, I had at one event, I signed 800 books in 36 minutes. I know because they timed me. I don't know why <laughs> they timed me, but they did. Um, but I, it's kind of a balance. Um, I, you know, at this point in my career, I don't have to tour anymore. The books are going to sell. But I like it's. I, I sort of call it payback because this is the way, only way for me to break out of my solitary, you know, confinement and writing the novels. And I can go and meet my readers, thank them for being fans. I can go and support bookstores. You know, as you mentioned, I have a mix on there of chain and small independent bookstores. The, li- the lifeblood of those places are author events where, you know, they get people to come into the stores, listen to me talk. I sign books. They buy other stuff while they're there. So this is a way for me to give back and thank you to the the communities that support me. Uh, that's why I continue to go out and tour. And yeah, I, I, do I get tired? Yeah. Do I get sometimes get sick when I'm out on tour and I don't feel great? Yes, that happens. I'm on lots of trains, planes, and automobiles. But I write on tour. You know, when I was overseas for a week, I wrote every day. I was writing on planes. I was writing on trains. I was writing in cars. I was writing, you know, in the lobby of a, or in a green room while I was waiting to go on for some show. So I still balance it out really well. But I do think it's important to continue the tour because that supports the book community. Well, take a second to tell us about your passion, writing, and and adult literacy. Well, it's it's important, particularly in this day and age, that you have really high reading and comprehension skills. You know, I don't care what job you have. You could be a car mechanic. You could be an investment banker. Uh, you've got to have strong reading and comprehension skills. And we have really, we've fallen off a cliff in this country. I, I look across now and I see teachers striking, you know, because they haven't had raises in 15 years. They're working six jobs to make ends meet. Um, and they're teaching our future, and we, we pay them so little, and they're using money out of their own pockets to buy school supplies. I mean, we're the richest country in the world. We should have, you know, a, a, just a class A, class a, a top-tier education system, and we just don't put enough money into it. And that bleeds off into what we do at the Wishingwell Foundation with literacy. A lot of people come out of these schools that are underfunded, and they can't read or read at an acceptable level to really survive in today's economy. So we do as much as we can. We had a great year last year. We funded about 40 programs last year. We pumped a bunch of money into local communities across the country. But I have to tell you that, you know, the demand for what we do is overwhelming. There's just not enough supply out there. Well, listen, we all support teachers, but I'm not sure that I support 
Sunday school teachers anymore after reading your latest book, but we, we won't give that away. For anybody who wants to read The Fallen, it's a fantastic story set in any small Rust Belt town that you've ever been through in Pennsylvania or New York or Ohio or really anywhere across the country because the opioid scourge is literally a coast-to-coast phenomenon and a nightmare. And I just, it, it is clear to me that you do very deep research. That or, or maybe you have some personal reason, which is not on my business, but what made you decide to to delve into this this real crisis in America? I like, you know, I, I write to entertain. I write to keep people turning the pages. But, I, you know, for me, it's more than that. I write to also inform. And I think the two two biggest problems we have today as a country, we have many, but two of the ones I highlight in this book are the, the plight of the small town rust belts across the country where, you know, the towns were created because there was a capitalist opportunity. There was a business opportunity. You had a mine, coal there. You had a mill there. You had something there that drew people to, to make a living, set down roots, have families. And then everything goes away. You know, the jobs go away, but this town still is, exists. People still live there. They still have families to support. So what are they going to do? And then on top of that, flight that they have. You have the opioid crisis where, you know, I call them drugs of despair, where it's just coming down on people who are already without a lot of hope and it's just pounding them again. It's like the perfect storm for, for badness. And I, I thought it was important to highlight those two problems in this novel so people at least can be aware of it. I know there's a lot in the news about it, but sometimes in a, in a novel, people can really get a deeper sense of what's going wrong. And maybe with that awareness, uh, they can sort of help in the effort to write it. Part and parcel of the opioid crisis is all the deaths that we're seeing across the country. And you have one, one funeral scene, and I, I love the way you write this. You said the preacher eulogized a man he didn't know, some hymns were sung, and then a final prayer was given. After that, the man of the cloth went over and said some private words to the widow and patted, in this case, the little girl Zoe on the head. The little girl recoiled from the stranger's touch, which is exactly what would happen for, for any kid. Your book, uh, page 247, write that down, anybody wants to read it. Page 247 had me in tears, a grown man. Now, without giving it away, it's Amos Decker, our hero, consoling his partner's eight-year-old niece who had just lost her father and was afraid that when they buried him, he would be cold in the ground. Wow, does anything you write make you emotional as you're writing it? Because you're uh, you're really pulling the strings on our emotions right now, David. Yeah, it was. It, that was a way I needed, you know, Amos, Amos Decker is a very, very aloof uh, guy, and it's hard for him to relate to people. In this book, I wanted to try to reach his humanity's core again, show that it was still there. And that was funny, the passage you just you just talked about. My wife read that book. She texted me, and she said, you just, she goes, one, I'm crying. And she said, two, you really, you, you humanized him in that in that one scene. I saw Amos Decker for the first time as a, as a true human being. And the little, the, the Amos Decker, Oh, he has his prodigious intellect in many ways, his childlike, you know, he goes through his life just because of what happened to him. And for him to have this foil, you know, a little girl that he can relate to and talk to maybe better than he can with adults, to have that scene on the stairs when they go through what they did uh, was very important for me on a number of levels. One, it was important for the plot. Two, it was important for his, Alex Jameson's partner to see it. And three, it was important for me to show the reader code. This, this is the guy. This is the guy that seems very annoying at times because he just says it really pick up on societal cues and he walks out of rooms while people are still talking to him and I know it frustrates you but please look a little bit deeper and see that this is what this guy really is well if you love murder mysteries and thrillers and I would say Americana uh, then you probably already read David Baldacci but check out The Fallen David Baldacci thank you so much
Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. The Terminal List is the debut thriller from Navy SEAL-turned-writer Jack Carr. In it, his protagonist Jack Reese, who's also a Navy SEAL, has lost everything and is out for revenge. He recently spoke to our Pat Farnack about it. That is a wicked photo of you on the book cover. Woo. I know everybody keeps telling me I need to smile because most people that know me rarely see me not smile. So, Well, the terminal list, we're talking to Jack Carr, the author, this morning, and, and you've wanted to be a Navy SEAL and a writer since you were seven, I understand. And isn't it great when dreams come true? Uh, I, I feel so fortunate. About the same age, I also wanted to become a Navy SEAL. So to be doing my my second dream in life after leaving the military, it's just, uh, I mean, I, I can't, it seems surreal at times. Your story in The Terminal List has been compared with uh, Charles Bronson's Death Wish because everything has been taken away from your protagonist, uh, Jack Reese, and he really has nothing to lose. That's right. And I wanted to make it a little different uh, in that I needed to make him somebody that thought he was actually dying. So that's the that's the twist to the story mm-hmm. with the uh, the drug testing on some of our nation's most elite special operators. Um, but I got that from really Japanese Bushido from their Code of Honor, where samurai used to go into battle thinking they were already dead. Um, and they thought that made them more effective and efficient warriors. So I thought, how do you take that and apply it to a modern day warrior? And uh, and that's, uh, that's why we have the, the pharmaceutical tie in there. Yeah. I have to ask this uh, because of the times we live in. Guns are very important, of course, to a Navy SEAL. Uh, but what about the the portrayal of guns in your book in, in 2018 America with the school shootings and so forth? Does it give you a moment's pause? Well, for in the, the story, mm-hmm. he's a guy that's been at war for 16 plus years. And when everything is, is taken away from him and he finds out that there's a conspiracy that leads its way up to the, the highest levels of, of government, to people in the financial sector, pharmaceutical industry, and then people in his own chain of command, it's really a continuation of that war that he's already been in for the last 16 plus years. So uh, he raised the, uh, the uh, armory of his enemy, which is now his government, and uh, kind of continues on this, uh, this path uh, until he gets his, uh, his reckoning. We're living in such uh, dark times in many ways, and, and it's it's disturbing that the corruption that you talk about in the terminal list, I mean, could be happening in America. And in some ways, we have seen that it has happened in the past. Right. And it's, uh, you know, I got some of the idea for, for part of the story from the, the church hearings in the uh, in the 1970s, mm. where they really exposed uh, a lot of abuses of power by different uh, agencies of the federal government. So I think it was the IRS, CIA, NSA, and really an overreach of their uh, of, of their powers. Um, and uh, I, I thought, hey, what if what if those hearings didn't happen, or what if somebody didn't get the memo? Uh, enough time has passed where where the where someone today is uh, is going to going to breach that that trust once again. And uh, so. Uh, you know, I didn't mean it to be as timely as it is, but people are really well. The resonate. I think it's resonating for a few reasons. One, because uh, the the emotions that the main character feels in the book are things that I felt at some point over the last twenty years. So I took those emotions from experiences in real life and applied them to this this fictional narrative. And then two, um, we explore that uh, that theme of government overreach in times of peril and NSA surveillance against uh, U.S. citizens without their consent. So. It ended up being quite timely. I'll say. Uh, not to give too much away, but the cliffhanger ending, 
wasn't really an ending as much as, as a loose end to me. Made me wonder, are you uh, going to tie up that loose end in your book number two? You're just going to have to wait and see. There's <laughs> uh, characters that. from the first book that end up in uh, in book number two, which I'm working on right now. But uh, which ones and in, in what capacity, that's the, that's the secret. Before we wrap up, how is your son doing? I understand your family uh, moved because of the care that he can get in Utah, right? That's right. There's a thing called the National Ability Center here, and it's headquartered right here in, in Park City, and they um, really help people with um, with cognitive and physical disabilities and their families um, and help them reach their, their full potential. Um, it's an amazing organization, and I finished up our military time in, in San Diego, California, and then thought, hey, let's, uh, let's get to the mountains and and, uh, and and get to the National Ability Center. So uh, up we are in, in Park City. But um, yeah, our son has a uh, mutation of the NR2F1 gene, which is something that's so new that they don't really have a, a name for it yet, but it manifests itself as a global developmental disability. And, and um, you know, our job is to really help him reach his full potential, whatever that might be. And how old is your son now? So he's 10. Oh. He's 10. He's a sweet little guy. He's got a great smile and a a little sense of humor, but he needs help pretty much doing uh, everything and, and will for life. So um, that, uh, in leaving the military, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they don't have that sense of purpose when they leave something like the military or, or uh, professional sports or uh, being an Olympic athlete, something that's very, very team-centric that they've been so focused on uh, for so long. But uh, for, for us, you know, we had that, uh, that next mission in life was really handed to us by, uh, with, with our son. So um, that's uh, that's our, our next purpose and our next mission, and and um, uh, you know we I think it's made us more more uh, a stronger, more loving, more compassionate family. Well, best of luck to you, and uh, I can't wait to see what you bring us next. Oh, thank you so much. I'm hard at work on it now. <laughs> I bet you are. When is that going to come out? Probably another year or. That's right. March 2019, it hit shelves, and then this one turns into the paperback right about that time. So. Oh. Uh, Very excited about it. More than 14 centuries after Homer is believed to have written the Odyssey, author Madeline Miller has reimagined the ancient Greek classic in her new book, Circe. But don't worry if it's been a long time since you've read the Odyssey, 20 years. Madeline's book will transport you back. She recently stopped by our studios for a chat. I have always just been so passionately interested in sort of how the ancient authors looked at human nature. Um, Both Circe and Patroclus, who's the narrator for my first novel, um, are are these really deep, interesting, but also mysterious characters. And I think part of what drew me in was wanting to sort of explore that mystery. Um, Circe is the daughter of the sun god Helios, and she's most famous from Homer's Odyssey for turning Odysseus's men into pigs. And of course, that begs the question, why is she turning men into pigs? How did she get there? How does she have this witchcraft, which is this new power? Um, She's the first witch, actually, in Western literature. And so it, it all starts with that question for me, and I, I really wanted to, you know, answer that in my own way. How were you first introduced to these characters? Um, so it goes all the way back to my childhood. Um, my mother actually used to read to me pieces of the Iliad and the Odyssey as bedtime stories, which now she thinks makes her sound really inappropriate. But I <laughs> loved it. 
Um, I totally loved it. She absolutely knew who her daughter was. And it was just, I can remember from the very first time that she said, you know, she read the beginning of the Iliad to me, sing goddess of the rage of Achilles. I was just totally hooked. Um, and so I think it, it all kind of grew out of that. I continued to love the myths and want to explore them. Um, and then when it came time to read the Odyssey, which we read in eighth grade in my school, um, I was totally ready. I was so excited. And that is really where my first encounter with Circe was. Um, I had heard about her in the mythology generally, but um, in the Odyssey in eighth grade, I was reading along and Odysseus and his men land on her island and he's totally exhausted when he lands on her island. He's lost all of his ships except for one, 11 ships destroyed and all the men on them. He's seen his men eaten by the Cyclops, torn apart by cannibals. He's just been brutalized on this journey. Um, and they arrive on this island and he sends a contingent of his men to go explore this house. And Circe welcomes them in, and she seems so lovely and nice, and she gives them food, and she gives them wine, which is drugged, and then she turns them into pigs. And then, of course, Odysseus has to go up and, and try and rescue them. Um, and this is, at this point, my 13-year-old self reading this was totally excited. There are very few female figures like Circe in the ancient mythology. Um, strong, independent, uh, has power, but doesn't, isn't going to be punished for it. And I thought, and, and clearly very clever. Um, and so I was really looking forward to this big meeting between, you know, the wily Odysseus, the most brilliant of the heroes, and this incredibly intelligent witch as well. Um, I thought, you know, there's gonna be a real battle of wits. And Odysseus goes, and he's been given some herbs that make him immune to her power. So he, he goes to her house, and she tries the spell on him. It doesn't work. And then he pulls out his sword, and she screams, falls to her knees, begs for mercy, and invites him into her bed. And I remember this just profound feeling of disappointment as a 13-year-old. I, I had really wanted there to be something exciting for her to do, um, as opposed to just instantly fold um, as sort of the hero has to overcome this obstacle. She's the obstacle, so she has to get out of the way. Um, and I think that was in some ways, I, I never, I had no thought of writing a book then, but I, I actually feel like that was kind of the seed, that, that feeling of, but, but how is she feeling? Let's stick, let's keep the camera on her for a minute. And also when you think about now in this day and age with everything we're seeing with the Me Too movement and, and women finally finding their voice, it's also very interesting the way you tackle it and it kind of has these modern themes to it because when you really boil it down, she's a stereotype. She's a, a woman living on her own with cats, albeit <laughs> they're lions. That's right. Very and big she, cats. And she knits. So yeah. it's like this very <laughs> stereotype of this woman. Mm. So it's interesting how you tackle that while staying true to the original story. Well, and I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these sort of issues that, that women have struggled with are timeless. I, I think we've come a long way, but we still have, have a long way to go. And so I was trying to um, bring a little bit of a modern perspective, but I was also just trying to kind of highlight the things that are already there in, in the ancient stories. Um, it was very strange to be editing this in sort of the final round of edits of this book as so many news stories were coming out, as you say, because I started the book seven years ago before um, a lot of that was happening. And, you know, I would be working on a scene and then I would go check the news and it would be, you know, a story about a woman being silenced or um, being abused or assaulted. And I was like, wow, I was just dealing with that today in the scene I was writing. So it was very 
you know, I have always felt very strongly that these myths are incredibly relevant, but it really drove the point home. (laughs) How much of your book is the mythology and how much of it is what you've added to it? Um, it's It's a mix. So I follow the Homer part the Homer episode of Circe and Odysseus fairly closely. Um, But that is a very short episode. And Circe actually has this whole life that has nothing to do with Odysseus, which is part of why I was so um, interested in her. Uh, Odysseus is sort of takes up about two and a bit chapters in the book, um, which I thought was fair because she takes up about two and a bit books of the Odyssey. So, you know, now he's the cameo. Um, (laughs) And her... uh, so, but for that section, I did follow Homer fairly closely. There are a few sort of emotional differences, but a lot of the, you know, the major touchstones are, are all there. Um, and then I looked to other authors to kind of draw on all the myths I could. Um, Ovid was a major source for me. Um, Apollonius of Rhodes, there's an episode where she runs into her niece, who's Medea. Uh, she's aunt to a lot of interesting people, Medea, Ariadne, the Minotaur, um, Who's the monstrous, you know, half half bull, half man, but eats humans, monster, um, and so I, I drew on on sort of myths all around. But I also was providing a lot of connective tissue, and I was didn't use all the myths by any means. Um, so it was just it was trying to construct this narrative of a person who is born into this completely horrendous family. That's the divine, those are the gods. The Greek gods are so cruel and vicious um, in the ancient mythology and also in my book, uh, and is sort of trying to find a place for herself. Um, Can she exist in this world that is very hostile to women and very hostile to any sort of weakness? Now, I found myself as I was reading it constantly going to Wikipedia to, to, to look up references, things I didn't remember from when I had originally first read the mythologies. Is that something you hope people do? Um, I definitely, so I'm, I'm a teacher, so I always want people to use libraries and, and sources. Um, but yes, I, I love it. I mean, the, the nicest compliment you can give me is to tell me that one of my books made you want to read the Iliad or the Odyssey um, or, or, you know, go back and, and check out the ancient poetry or the ancient mythology. That is so meaningful to me. Absolutely. And you did mention you didn't use all the myths. So does that mean we can expect another book maybe in the, the same world, the same realm? <laughs> um, maybe. I, I think I might be moving away from Homer. These were the two characters that really possessed me. Um, I, I didn't set out to write one for the Iliad and one for the Odyssey. That just It just happened that way. Um, but I, I do think there are a few more myths that are rattling around in there. So I'm, I'm sort of sidling up to them and seeing what, what blossoms. But one of the other things I love is Virgil's Aeneid, so that's sort of where I'm, I'm looking next. Well, you're a classicist, so it would make sense to, to stick to the classics. Yes, well, I love, I love this material, and, and, but I may not, you know, honestly, I may not stick there forever. My sort of path into writing about classics was um, not obvious by any means to me. I, I originally used to write contemporary fiction, and then I was a classicist, and it was sort of never the twain shall meet. Um, and what ended up bringing them together was actually theater. I'm also a theater director, and I direct Shakespeare plays. And I directed a production of Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, um, which is such a great play. It is bitter and angry and vicious, and Shakespeare just lets all these characters have it. Um, you know, Achilles is in there, and Hector, and Ajax, and all the, all the big names, and he just satirizes all of them totally, brutally. Um, But working on that play and working with those characters in such a creative way as a director, you know, working with the actor, 
who's playing Achilles on his motivation and doing the costuming for Agamemnon and the sword fighting. All that was so exciting that when it was done, I sort of didn't want to stop interacting with the stories that way. And that's really what led me into writing about them. Well, the book, Circe, is extremely enjoyable. I loved it the minute I had it and basically read through it in a couple of days. Oh, (laughs) thank you. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And hopefully we'll talk to you the next time around. I look forward to it. Just so you know, I wasn't joking about loving Madeline's book. I sent her publicist a pre-dawn email after I read it to express how much I had enjoyed it. And that's where we'll close the book. Next week, we'll introduce you to an author who's marking the release of his book by running with fans around the country. You'll understand when you hear the interview. In the meantime, run with us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. And feel free to email me at lisat at WCBS880.com. That's L-I-S-A-T at WCBS880.com.